Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. Not much in the way of new stuff this week. I am working away on GFL 7's second draft, and it's looking like it'll finish up at about 170,000 words, or 680 pages in paperback. I tell you, there's so much nuance to this story that it just keeps getting girthier. As I mentioned last week, we signed a five-book deal for The Crypt. I will start on book one's first draft after I finish GFL 7's second draft. Still no publication dates for any of it. We will announce all dates when we know them. Hey, we have a new text number. Hundreds of junkies just like you signed up to get occasional texts from us. We let them know about new episodes posting, live streams that are coming up, book news, sales on our merchandise, things like that. Do you want to sign up? Text the word podcast to 855-955-5095. That is podcast, one word, to 855-955-5095. We'll also be firing off a coupon code for the scottsigler.com site once we get our new online store built in a couple of months. And everyone who is on the list when that launches is going to get that juicy code. Good for merch and girthy books and all the wonderful things. That is it for this week. Let's get you caught up on the story. And then we're all going to go figure out what we're eating for the Super Bowl. Previously on... The Stone Wolves. Zan welcomed Aya as an official full member of the Olrin crew, after which Aya made an immediate power play. Now the Olrin is on its way to Kurgurk, the most dangerous planet in the galaxy. Meanwhile, Druze Thorn continues to push his people to meet a brutal deadline. Chapter 16. Families. Killian drank in his quarters until the buzz beat back the feeling of betrayal and his lousy mood. Then he wandered the halls of the Olorun. Oddly, his cabin felt too cramped. He found a nook near the engineering section of the ship. A place to think about things, perhaps. He sat in front of a hatch leading into the punch drive section. But on the floor, he leaned his head back against the hatch's cool metal. He could feel the continuous thrum-thrum-thrum vibrations emanating from the punch drive in the deck beneath him. One day left in the two-day trip to Rurgurk, populated by the Kurgurk species, which was also the name of their home planet and, maybe, the name of the government. No one knew for sure. The race was so strange. Individuals looked like crawling rocks. The three planets of the system were so hostile, they attracted only the most die-hard adrenaline tourists who, far more often than not, never came back from their misguided adventures. More than that, the Kurgurk were so different, so downright weird, that they had no political or economic relations with any government other than the Hurrah Tribal Accord. Hurrah loved to vacation on planets that were deadly to most other races. 
evolving in the wildly varied pressures and temperatures of gas giants, gave the hurrah an environmental durability not seen in any other species. A place lethal to all save for two races, and Killian was taking his ship there. His ship and his crew. Killian hated the man he'd become. He ran away from conflict, not toward it. He hid from his past. He shackled himself in sadness and regret, perversely comfortable with being haunted by sins that were older than even the most long-lived humans. When had he become this person? When Thorne's constant pursuit made him abandon his family? When his wife burned herself to death to protect their children? When his starving son was hanged for stealing bread? Or was it even earlier, when constant arguments had made his only daughter run away from home while he'd been on a mission? And his new family, his idiotic crew. They wanted to be part of Redwire's cause, a cause Killian had once fought for, a cause that wound up costing him those he held dear. He'd fought. He hadn't made a difference. He'd lost everything. And hell, he'd changed so much he couldn't even stand up to his own crew. The Oleron was his ship. Zan, Beans, and Aya worked for him. Sure, he'd rescued Aya because he needed a comms operator. Fanaka had set that up expertly. And sure, he'd rescued Redwire because Fanaka had orchestrated that as well. Other than those moments, Killian's life revolved around apathy. Just enough effort to keep fuel in the ship and food on the table. Because why try when you can coast? Why sprint when you can sleepwalk? Why think when you can drink? He was a pig lounging in the mud of mediocrity, wasn't he? Why get out? Out was beyond the comfort zone. Out required effort. Out meant more than surviving. It meant living. Living not hiding, because that's what he'd been doing all these years. Hiding. Because of Druge Thorn. A wave of anger blazed bright within Killian, hot and acidic. It had been years since he'd felt this kind of rage. He didn't like this at all. He wouldn't let the monster out. Not now, not ever. Ah, but that monster would have been real handy back in the borehole, that slippery side of him said now. You could have stopped Fanaka before she attacked. You would have known she was going to strike before she did. The monster and the dead sense that came with it. Dead sense. It was a weird description for a thing that defied explanation, but he'd never come up with a better name for it, and he sure as hell wasn't going to ask anyone else for ideas. He'd never talked about it. To anyone. Yes, the dead sense would have come in handy, might have stopped Aya from getting shot, might have let Killian control the situation and keep Beans from smashing Fanaka into paste. Would the strange glowing lines the dead sense brought have shown him the right way to maneuver in that situation, shown him where to go? It was pointless to wonder. Dead sense, when it chose to show up at all and there was no predicting when it would, was part of his bloodlust and, like the bloodlust, was kept in check by drugs. He reached into his pants pocket and extracted the bottle of his blue Nasdor pills. He shook two out, popped them, dry swallowed them. That'd beat back the beast, the anger, the emotions, all of it. 
he hoped. He heard footsteps coming down the corridor. Redwire, coming his way. You should be sleeping, Killian said. Like Aya. Reju tanks can only do so much if you're not rested. Redwire glanced around the corridor, perhaps expecting to see an open panel and tools. What are you doing here, killer? Just sitting? Killian tried to come up with a clever line, but the Nazdor was already kicking in. Yeah, he said. Mind if I join you? I know I should be sleeping, but that little fuzzball won't leave me be. He was camped outside my cabin, kept knocking on the door and saying, Remember when you did X? I finally told him I needed to go for a walk by myself and do godling things. What are godling things? I don't know, Redwire said. Because I'm not a godling. Killian gestured to the space on the floor next to him. Sit if you like, Red. It's been a dog's age. Now's as good a time as any to catch up. The man shrugged and sat beside Killian. Yeah, it has been a while. The only time we've talked was when you asked me to help your son. You and I didn't talk about anything else then. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have questions. Killian nodded. I might have one or two of my own. Shoot. Why'd you leave the wolves? You vanished while I was in cold sleep. The others could never really explain why you left. As Killian answered, he felt that honey-like warm comfort pour over him. The comfort of telling an oft-told story, the one where you'd practice it so many times, it felt more like reciting lines than actually speaking them. Say something by rote long enough, and you'll convince yourself it's true. Most of yourself, anyway. Corruption is insidious, he heard himself say. And it's everywhere. And it eventually destroys everything. There is no actual good in this universe. There is no right. There is only cellar rat survival. Redwire nodded. True, but I asked you why you left the Stone Wolves. We've got time for a lecture on any number of subjects, though, so you go ahead. Killian had to stifle an unexpected laugh. Redwire had always been quick-witted, fast with a subtle dig. Survival is the only thing worth pursuing. High-minded pursuits like justice are lies at their core, because people define what justice is, and people are full of crap. Self-preservation is the only thing worth living for. It's the only thing all us sentients really have in common. Everyone wants for themselves and theirs. Redwire looked irritated. I really hope you're bringing this back around to the question at hand, which is, why did you leave us? When I woke, I didn't hear from you, not until years later when you needed something from me. I didn't pry then. I'm prying now. I helped with your son, so I think I deserve an explanation. You deserved a rescue, which you got. Just answer my question, killer. The man was calm, insistent. And he was right. He did deserve an explanation. So did Fanaka and Recoil, but it was too late for that. Besides, there were still many hours to kill before the Oleran reached Kurgurk. The Vermada warped the will of the guild, Killian said. The cancer spread. It metastasized. Hell, think about it. Some of our Stone Wolves ops might have been ordered by the Vermada. Maybe we were being manipulated all along. 
The Vamata wasn't big enough back then to have infected the guild at the levels that gave us orders, Yitzhak said. Now it's a different story, true, but not then, and you know that. A fair point, one Killian had known before he'd made his illogical claim. Redwire wasn't going to let him off the hook. It doesn't matter, Killian said. The killer I knew already understood that the universe was corrupted. That's why you fought for the cause in the first place. You knew the Vermada was infiltrating the guild long before you left. What really sent you packing, man? Killian didn't reply. Redwire removed his hand. His eyes narrowed. You rescued Fanaka from Thorn. That couldn't have been the reason. So I'm left with the obvious. What happened during that rescue that made you change? Did something happen to you? Or did you do something? Killian felt cold inside. Did you do something? Redwire didn't know. He couldn't. No one did. Not even Fanaka. But he'd thrown a blind bullseye regardless. I don't want to talk about it. Do what we were trained to do. Just block out that I ever left. That's the only way you and I can move on. The only way we accomplish your mission. Redwire was quiet for a moment. Killian was grateful for that, yet dreading the next question. Red had always been persistent to the point of being insulting. But this time, at least, the younger man let him off the hook. All right, he said. What do you want to talk about then? The mission? What I think happens next? There was really only one subject that Killian wanted to know about. Tell me about my kid. Not the stuff in the news. Tell me what he's like. Redwire smiled, a smile that showed the years and the beginnings of deep wrinkles, but was also unchanged from that of the grinning, cocky-as-hell 15-year-old Killian had first met so long ago. You should be proud, Red said, and not just of his on-field accomplishments. He's grown into a good man. I admit, at first, he was the biggest asshole I'd ever met. Racist as can be, arrogant, judgmental, quick to take offense. A real joy to be around. But he watched. He learned. He changed. He's become a great leader. He makes hard decisions, and when he does, he goes all in. His work ethic is second to none. His conviction is undeniable, killer. In that way, he's just like his old man used to be. Killian's eyes stung. Quentin had turned out to be a great man. That was good. Not that Killian had anything to do with it. He's cut from a different cloth, Red said. He's the one. Killian groaned, bonked the back of his head lightly against the hatch. Damn it, Red. Why do you have to go and ruin the moment with your superstitious nonsense? You don't know him, Redwire said, then seemed to hear his own words. Sorry, you don't know him yet. When you do, you'll see the impact he has on sentience of all races. What he has inside him transcends species divisions in a way I've never seen before. I don't think anyone has seen it before. He could be the key to unifying the races against Kretorakian rule. That coldness inside Killian spread, from his chest to arms, from stomach to legs. The monster inside of him suddenly wanted out, 
But it wasn't going anywhere because of the double dose of Nasdor, probably not because Killian had actual willpower. Have you talked to him about the guild? Have you tried to recruit him? Redwire didn't answer for a moment. He had to sense the chill in the air, how things had suddenly gone from friendly to frigid. Not in so many words. I've told him he's destined for something greater, but that's as far as I've gone with it. And what was his response? He blew it off, Red said. For as much talent and drive as that kid has, he doesn't understand his potential. Yes, he does. And he's fulfilled that potential by playing football better than anyone else ever. If we get out of this, Red, you promise me that you leave my son out of this guild crap. He's doing just fine without it. You promise me. Redwire fell silent again. Killian knew what the man would say next, as if four decades of distance weren't there at all. I can't promise you that. When the time comes, Killer, and the galaxy needs Quentin to step up and unify us, I won't shy away from that because his father doesn't like the idea. Yes, Killian had known what Red would say, and, as such, already knew his own response. You and I go way back, Red. Way back. I risked my life to save you, and I will do it again. But if you try to recruit my son into the guild, then you and I will be enemies. Redwire put his hand on Killian's shoulder again. I know, old friend, the younger man said. I know. Hopefully, God will help you see the light before he helps your son do the same. Killian felt tension in his neck and jaw. If threats made Redwire sway his course, he would have never been in the Stone Wolves in the first place, let alone have become a critical guild asset. Redwire stood. I'm going to get around in the Reju tank, then get some sleep. You look like you could use some rest yourself. If I could sleep, you think I'd be sitting on my ass in front of the punch drive room? Redwire smiled, then walked off, leaving Killian alone with his thoughts, which was somewhere he did not want to be. Was it too early for another beer? No. No, it was not. He stood, grunting at the effort, and headed for his cabin. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. 
they will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Zan had set the course. From Chichana in the Sklono dynasty, to OS2 and then Free Station, both in the Concordia, then to Laura in the Hurrah Tribal Accord, and, finally, to Rurgurg. That gave Aya time to program search requests while in punch space, and four chances to recover information gathered by her remote crawls. It was the punch-out at Laura, just one half-day stop before entering Kurgurg space and reaching Rurgurg, when one of her crawls found what she'd been looking for. So that's the reason, she said. Melody Ponsky is an inmate at the borehole. That's why the sisters are after us. They were in the mess hall. She thought they spent too much time in the rumpus room. Now that she was a full crew member, she could exercise a little influence. Like asking for everyone to sit down to a meal together instead of watching Skipper knock back bottle after bottle without even getting up from his chair. Eating a meal together, that's what a family did. Aya had opened up three frozen dinners, Salisbury steak, so good, for the humans, and canned jukawis for beans. She wasn't much of a cook, but maybe she would learn in time. If they survived the coming mission, that was. Melody Ponsky locked up in the borehole, Zan said. That explains much. How many sisters are there, exactly? Zan couldn't eat, at least not in the same room. But as always, her schmeck was there, this time with an orange and black stuffed Ionath Kraken for a face. Four, Aya said. Melody was the leader. While she's locked up, Harmony, Cadence, and Sonata seem to be working together to run things, but it's hard to tell. Skipper sighed. He absently pushed his food around in its tinfoil tray. Let me guess, he said. The Ponskis were the ones who wanted the borehole location. Fanaka found out and hijacked the process from them. Aya nodded. Seems that way. Word is, the Ponsky gang paid a huge sum to get the location of the prison, but the intel was stolen before they could get it. In case you were wondering, the intel was stored... On a data cube, Skipper finished. Damn you, Fanaka. Back in the beginning of this caper, Fanaka had told the Oleran crew, that the source of the data was probably dead. Aya now knew that probably was almost certainly definitely. Fanaka had killed the source to tie up loose ends. Goldman used a bread roll to mop up the last of the congealing gravy from his tray. He'd attacked the meal with gusto. Maybe he hadn't been fed much in prison. So the Ponskis will still be looking for the borehole coordinates, he said. They don't have a way to reach out to Sackacorn? Aya had eaten only half of her food, but was already full. She pushed her tray over to Goldman, who smiled, then nodded his thanks. That's how it looks, Aya said. Best I can tell, the Ponskis put out the word, 
the intermediary heard about it and either already had contact with Sakakorn or found a way to reach her. The intermediary started the process but didn't tell the Ponskis about Sakakorn. Somehow, Fanaka found out. I don't know how. Skipper and Goldman exchanged a glance. Thorn, Skipper said, using Guild and Vermonter resources. Goldman nodded. That sounds about right. A request like the Ponskis made would make waves in the criminal underworld. He had to have already been looking for a way to find me, find out what I know. He catches wind of the Ponskis' plan. He knows Fanaka could run circles around them. He kidnaps her family and forces her to do the work. If Fanaka didn't kill the intermediary, then Thorne did, Skipper said. Either way, the Ponskis still want their sister, and the only lead they have on her location is the Oleron. Is us. Beans said nothing. He ate straight out of the can, which was the way he liked it. Family. That's what all of this revolved around. The Ponskis need to rescue their sister. Fanaka doing what she had to do to save her children. Aya becoming a full part of the Oleron crew. Goldman wanting to stop a war so his children could live in peace. Aya wondered if Skipper had a family outside the ship. Probably not. He spent all his time with the crew. Aside from his mad fandom for the Krakens, the guy didn't have much else. The sisters will still be hunting for us then, Zan said. They will not find us this time around. I have filed multiple false ship IDs for this trip. And it was spur of the moment. The only sentients who know where we're going are in this room. We will have to deal with the Ponskis at some point, but for now, there is no way they can find us. Beans used a saliva-coated rasper to scrape out the last of the can's contents. Just give them the location, he said. What do we care if they go after their sibling? Aya had been thinking the same thing, but had been afraid to mention it. She didn't want to look bad in front of Zan, who had finally accepted her. Not that I have a vote, but I vote no to that, Goldman said. With sack of corn in place, and with what Aya did, we have an ace in the hole if another guild member gets imprisoned there. Keeping that location a secret could make all the difference. Yitzhak Goldman talked in such big terms. When he said all the difference, he was talking about galactic-level consequences. I agree with our guest, Zan said. Aya's work, combined with Sakakorn's greed, is a tool we should not give away so soon. Beans used his tentacle to crush the can, something he did after a particularly delicious meal. Maybe Zan is right, he said. We wouldn't want to waste Aya's Trojan arse. Aya snorted a giggle. Trojan horse, Skipper said. An arse is a human slang term for a butt. Each of Beans's four eyes stared at a different sentient. But, he said, is this another Hansel Gretel issue? Skipper sighed, pushed his tray away. Goldman looked at it, raised an eyebrow. Skipper slid it over to him. Goldman dug in. We can decide on giving the Ponskis the information later on, Skipper said. After we've helped Redwire save the universe. I don't want to give up by his smart work without getting paid for it, but let's focus on the task at hand. The very lethal task at hand. Aya felt a surge of pride. 
While waiting for her fellow crew members to bring Redwire back from his cell, she'd used her hardpoint access to the Nemeric system to install a back door. With it, not only could she block external sensors, as she'd done the first time, she could lock down all vehicles in a landing shaft, including any kind of distress beacon the administration might fire off. She'd even left false trails in place, so the analysts who investigated the Goldman escape would find hidden access points. They'd eliminate those and, most likely, think they had patched the problem, not realizing that those distractions had been left there for them to discover. A fine piece of work, if Aya did say so herself. If you have to go in again, it still won't be easy, Skipper said to Goldman. You'll have to use Sakakorn's riot plan, which means sentience will die. Goldman sneered. You want me to cry over Carmago's probable death? Not just him, Skipper said, his voice low and level. I imagine that not all the prisoners are as even-tempered as you. If they're let out, sentience will get hurt, and some will die. You'll have that on your conscience. Goldman stacked the three now-empty tinfoil trays on top of one another. The new pacifist you is really something else, killer. I imagine that thin veneer won't last forever. There will come a time when you don't have the choice to keep those morals, when you have to decide which lives matter. Zan, how long until we reach Rurgurk? Four hours, the kraken-faced Schmeck said. Goldman stood, trays in hand. Then I'm going to go get some sleep. Thank you for the lovely meal, Aya. With that, he walked to the trash, dumped the tinfoil trays inside, and left the mess hall. Zan and Beans filtered out. Aya looked at Skipper, who seemed to be in his own world, staring down at the table. Well, at least he wasn't drunk or on his way there. See you in a few hours, Skip, she said. He didn't seem to hear her. Aya headed back to her quarters. A little more sleep seemed like a good idea. On the planet of MT-734, inside the secret Vermada facility that he'd overseen for years, Druge Thorne once again gazed from the window in his office onto the manufacturing floor below. The scientists and engineers were double-timing it now, working even longer shifts to complete their project. He'd made the deadline clear to them all. And since they were very afraid of Druge, and they damn well should be, they didn't question his orders. They simply did. There'd once been a time when this facility had staffers who'd felt empowered to second-guess his judgment. Those days were gone. Druge had killed a few staffers with his bare hands. And by bare hands, he meant military-grade cybernetic spider claws. The others he had fired. And by fired, he meant made them leave the factory and wander on the planetoid's airless surface until they died. One of the latter had been kind enough to beat on the factory's big window until the skin of his palms split, smearing blood on the glass. The palm print blood was still there, freeze-dried, as was the body itself, a perfectly preserved warning to any workers who might think to challenge Druge in the future. He turned toward his desk, wincing as the pseudo-tendons in his mechanical legs pinched and pulled against his biological muscles bones, and blood vessels. Everything was painful. 
His was an existence of misery. He wished that miserable existence upon the universe. Smash everything that is beautiful. Destroy everything worth living for and loving. Paint the universe bleak and black. That's what Killian Carbonaro had done to him, after all. Druge's legs came to an inelegant stop. He concentrated, telling the elaborate cybernetic implants in his brain and spine to inform his metal legs to lower his body into his desk chair. They did. Druge sighed. He turned his gaze to the framed picture resting on the obsidian desk surface. His husband, Yazada, smiled back at him. So did his ten-year-old daughter, Sevimli. The picture had been taken thirty-seven years ago. A present from Yazada, who liked old things, who preferred flat pictures to holo. Thirty-seven years ago about a month before the three of them had moved to Laramie 3 so Druge could oversee the Vermada operations there. About a month before Killian Carbonaro came a-calling. The killer had blasted his way into the bunker within the palace's basement, freed his beloved comrade, Fanaka Tolvaj, a.k.a. Hopscotch, and then beat Druge to within an inch of his life. And then, Killian Carbonaro had smiled at Druge. And then, Killian Carbonaro had pulled Druge's family from their hiding place within the bunker. And then, Killian Carbonaro had demanded that Druge choose which one would die, Sevimli or Yazada. And of course, Druge hadn't made a choice because what kind of a psychopath makes that kind of ultimatum? In the end, it didn't matter, because Killian Carbonaro killed them both. He'd killed them both at the same time. The cloaked, red-faced demon had grabbed Savimli in one hand, Yazada in the other. He'd roared like the soulless monster he was, then slammed their bodies together again and again, as if he were clapping, a perverse take on the wind-up symbol monkeys of yester-century. Clang, 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 smash, smash, smash. Yazada had had one of those monkeys. Yazada had loved old things. Druge's husband and daughter had screamed, until eventually they didn't. And still, the killer pounded them together again and again, all reason gone from his eyes. By the end, the floor was drenched with their blood, and the people Druge loved most in the world looked more like hamburger than human beings. The killer should have finished Druge off, but he did not. The killer left Druge lying there, crippled, broken, to stare at his dead family. The guild called themselves freedom fighters, but that's not what the killer had been. He was terror incarnate. The Stone Wolves were terrorists, all of them. Guild members called the Vermada cancer, but that was wrong. The Vermada wasn't the disease, it was the cure. Killian Carbonaro? Now there was cancer. Druge would never forget that smile. The impish, wolf-like grin Killian Carbonaro had flashed just before he'd scoured the bunker for Druge's husband and child. Druge saw that smile in his dreams. He saw it everywhere, it seemed. He would exterminate that haunting smile. It would be an exorcism on a galaxy-wide scale if need be. 
The killer was out of hiding now. He'd be dead soon enough. I know where he's going, Druge thought, with growing satisfaction. I know where they're all going. Rurgurk. There wasn't a strong Vermada presence in that system, but that hardly mattered to Druge. A light on his desk began to flash. Another hateful meeting with the emissary, the proxy for the broker. The loathsome leaky was right on time, as always. Druge tapped a switch. The nearby holotank activated. The leaky's face appeared. Its gaping amphibious mouth opened and closed for a moment, as if gulping down air. The tiny yellow eyes, one on each side of the pointed face, stared out, unblinking, taking in the sight of Druge. The broker demands a progress report, the leaky said. It remains on trek. Nothing's changed since my last report. As if on cue, a spindly symbiote slid out of the leaky's right gill flap, crawled across the ridge of black spikes running up the back of its head, then slid into the left gill flap. Sickening. The broker also wants a report on the traveler, the emissary said. Was he extracted as planned? Druge felt a throb behind his right eye. Another migraine was on the way, undoubtedly triggered by this slimy sentient's intrusive questions. The traveler was indeed extracted, Druge said. I have reports that my underling died in the attempt to secure him. It seems possible that the traveler perished as well. If only that were true. When Fanaka failed to report back, Druge had spent a small fortune for his imperial informants to get some news about Fanaka and Goldman's whereabouts. Those informants had learned of the escape and of the ship that exploded not far from the borehole. Biomaterial had been found, from Fanaka and Goldman both. Druge knew Goldman was alive, and knew where he was going. He and that bastard Carbonaro. You are saying you are neither in possession of the Traveler, nor do you have actual confirmation of his death? You failed? Druge bristled at the insult. If all went well, he could quietly take Carbonaro out before the emissary or the broker could find out Goldman had escaped not only the borehole, but Druge as well. I did not fail, he said. The bats no longer have the traveler and therefore cannot question him as to our efforts. The black stripes crisscrossing the leaky's back and face suddenly changed color, blazing bright yellow. But you do not have him, the emissary said. And therefore, you do not know what the Guild or the Empire knows about our efforts. The broker will not be pleased. My impression is that the broker cares only about results, not the circuitous path taken to achieve them. Do you know the human proverb about making omelets and breaking eggs? Not at all. The saying requires knowledge of an earth creature called a ch- I do not care, the leaky said. Humans ramble on and on, and when they can't make a point based on the facts, they compare the facts to other unrelated things in order to try and illustrate their weak argument. Please stay focused on the point at hand. Someday, hopefully, Druge would meet this sentient face to face. The Traveler is no longer a threat, Druge said. That is all the broker needs to know.
He didn't believe the words he was saying, but he'd been lying for so long that he knew he sounded convincing. Convincing enough? The leaky stripes changed color once more, becoming a hue that was far more black than yellow. I will inform the broker. Yes, convincing enough. Druge managed to keep his sigh of relief internal rather than letting the leaky see it. There was still time to pull this off. If Druge got to Goldman before anyone else did. You said your agent is presumed dead, the emissary said. What do you wish us to do with her collateral? Druge had arranged for the murder of Fanaka's husband and the kidnapping of her children, but he'd long ago given up on personally managing hostages. He'd handed the two boys over to the Vermada for safekeeping. Fanaka was dead, but that was irrelevant. She'd been ordered to bring Goldman here, and she'd failed. The collateral is no longer relevant, Drew said. Dispose of it. He broke the connection. Drew's only regret was that Fanaka hadn't lived long enough to know her children were dead. That pain, that special kind of pain, there was no substitute for it. He willed his biomechanical legs to make him stand, then walked to his office window to once again look down at the factory floor below. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.